All right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're in a series in these middle sections of Luke we've called the first followers of Jesus. The first followers of Jesus. And in this middle section, we've been seeing again and again how Jesus builds this unstoppable movement. He's going to start doing some more strategic things in this chapter, but there are themes that we've seen again and again where he amazes people by who he is and the power that he has representing God here in the world. And then he calls followers to follow him, to be his disciples, to be his students. We're going to see that again continuing, becoming more strategic in this section in chapter 9. So as we turn the corner into chapter 9, you can turn in your black Bibles to page 865 if you want to grab one of those Bibles. 865, it should be close to there, 865, 866. It's Luke chapter 9, will be in verses 1 through 22. This week we're calling it Projecting Power. Projecting power. Last week we saw the power of Jesus. Four stories that emphasized his incredible power. And we saw how in the first story he amazed his disciples and they were asking the question, who is this that would calm the wind and the waves? And I said last week Psalm 89 and Psalm 107 answers that question, who calms the winds and the waves? It's God and God alone. And so we see the power of Jesus. Now Jesus is going to begin to transmit his power through his followers to project power, power projection. I never really heard that term in a military context until I started working with soldiers here at back then Fort Hood, now Fort Cavazos. One of my friends had sent me an email uh, and he had a little tagline. I guess it was the mission statement of his unit, but it had something about power projection there in the mission statement. I was like, what is this? What does this even mean? And I think I asked him at the time, for your sake, I looked it up on Wikipedia so I could share the definition with you. What is power projection? What does it mean for a military operation to project power? Power projection, Wikipedia says, or force projection or strength projection in international relations is the capacity of a state to deploy and sustain forces outside its territory. Outside its territory. It goes on, projecting power is a crucial element of a state's power in international relations. Any state able to direct its military forces outside its territory might be said to have some level of power projection capability. But the term itself is used most frequently in reference to militaries with a worldwide reach. And so here's an example of that in the first century. Rome. Roman power projection included Julius Caesar constructing the Rhine Bridge into Germany in 10 days to demonstrate the ability to march his 40,000 troops as he saw fit. The local inhabitants had previously enjoyed the natural protection of the river, but then they fled when this natural protection was overcome by the power projection of the Roman Empire. So that's context, right? That's what power projection looks like in the modern era. That's what it looked like in the Roman Empire. And now we see Jesus taking part in power projection, projecting his power. And yet there's a very important irony here. When Jesus does it, it's not military might. It's the proclamation of the kingdom. We're going to see an important difference. They were expecting a military leader. They were expecting him to project military power on behalf of Israel. He did it differently. The Bible says that when he returns in Revelation, there will be a physical projection of power. 
a final judgment. But we live in the day and age where Jesus is projecting his grace throughout the world. The proclamation of his kindness displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the age we live in, the projection of Jesus' power through the salvation that he gives us by his sacrifice. So let's read, starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 9, we'll read the first few verses, and then as we've done frequently, we'll unpack the rest of the verses as we move through the morning. But let's start with the first few verses, 1 through 6. Starting in chapter 9, it says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is Jesus really beginning to transform his disciples, the twelve, into apostles. Apostles literally means sent one. The Latin term is missionary. He's sending them out. They're becoming apostles. He's training the twelve as he begins to project power. We'll see a similar story in a couple of weeks in chapter 10, where he'll then send out 72 more disciples who will send out to preach in different towns. Um, As we look at this, we recognize that we need God's grace, that we need his power by the presence of his Holy Spirit to hear his word, to receive his word. So I'm going to pray that he'd be with us. Lord, we ask for you to be present with us. Your gracious and powerful spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear you, to listen to you, and to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So power projection. This text, I want to clarify, is primarily about the 12 apostles. And so we need to be careful that we don't um, do one of two mistakes that we can make when we're looking at things the apostles do. One is to just think we're the apostles, right? We're not apostles. Just to be clear, We are not the 12 apostles. They're the ones that wrote the Bible. They had a very specific role. So not everything perfectly one-to-one transfers, right? Um, And so that's one mistake. You read the Bible and you just think, I'm in every verse, right? Like, it's all about me. But another mistake is that you would put too much distance between you and the Bible and be like, that's for another age. That's for another people. I have nothing to do with them. No, they're our spiritual grandparents, and we are carrying on the work that Jesus gave them. So there's some distinctions, right? I'm not writing the Bible, but I'm still carrying on the work of telling the good news to people and helping people, right? And you are too. As God's church, we're carrying on the work. We're built on that foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles, and we're carrying on the work that they were doing. So we're not exactly the same as them, but we have a lot to learn from them. Uh, So as we see this being unpacked, John 17 is helpful to clarify that, that difference between the apostles and the later disciples that, that we are. John 17 talks about this, God's sending out his people, Jesus is sending out his people, and he makes an explicit distinction like, okay, I'm sending out these 12, but I'm also sending out others that are going to hear because of what they're saying, right? So John 17 is a good kind of theological summary for that. As we look at this text, what we see is that Jesus projects his power across the world in three ways. He does it through simple ministry, through burnout, and by the cross. Three ways that that apply to us still. Even though we're not exactly the same as the apostles, we're in their family, 
And he's going to do similar things in our life as well. So Jesus is going to project his power with simple ministry through burnout and by the cross. So number one, Jesus projects his power across the world with simple ministry. We see this in the first section, verses 1 through 9. I already read verses 1 through 6. And then there's another little story about Herod that we'll get there as well. Uh, And so again, as I said, this is the process of him sending them out physically to preach in different towns to begin to spread the news. There's been a lot of like slow down, putting on the brakes, and he's going to start speeding up here over time. He's going to start growing the ministry. He's going to start multiplying the ministry. He's going to start going to new places, taking new ground, and yet he's still going to try to focus them. It's going to be simple. It's going to be very simple, very focused, and that's what we see here in the story. This story occurs in other Gospels as well, so we kind of get uh, a chance to look at it through the lens of other authors. Um, It says in verse 1, He called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out. That's the verb form of apostle. He apostled them out there. He sent them out there to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Verse 2 says, Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. Let me say it one more time. Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. Let's jump down to verse 6. What does verse 6 say? Verse 6 says, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So what were they doing? Two things. Proclaiming, healing. Proclaiming, healing. Preaching, healing. Okay? Teaching the Word of God. Telling who God is. Salvation by faith in Jesus. The kingdom of God is here in the person of the Messiah. Come, repent. Some other language we see in other passages. Turn from sin. Trust in Jesus. That's the proclaiming of the kingdom. The preaching of the word of God. And they're healing. They're healing as well. So two things are happening. Now I would argue that we have a greater emphasis on preaching in this age and less of an emphasis on healing. But we'll come back to that in a minute. We still, in general, are going to teach the word and help people, right? That's, that's going to continue. Let's look at some of the other details of this simple ministry, though. Simply proclaiming and healing, proclaiming and healing. And how does he simplify it? He says this in verse 3. Take nothing for your journey. Take nothing for your journey. Okay, I have to stop there. Take nothing for your journey. What does that mean? That, that's going to be defined by what he's going to tell them next. And so we need to pay attention to how language works. And this is a helpful little focus point here. He says, take nothing for your journey, meaning keep it simple. And then he's going to say, but you can take some stuff. What he really means is don't take too much, right? Don't gear up and think that ministry is determined on you having tons of gear and tons of stuff and tons of technology. Don't rely on that stuff. I just want it to be simple. I just want you to preach and heal, preach and heal. Keep it simple. Don't rely on having a bunch of tools in your tool belt, okay? And that focus, again, the distinction between take nothing and then here's some rules that give you the details of that helps us to understand the way that this is presented in the different Gospels. I like to talk about this whenever there is a seeming contradiction from one Gospel to the next. That can be either an opportunity for us to say, ah, the main point is the same and it's expressed with slightly different details or if you really want an excuse to not believe in Jesus, you can get lost in the weeds and use those seeming contradictions as an excuse to not believe in Jesus. I would really encourage you not to do that. Not to be lazy and just use the easy excuse. But to actually dig a little deeper. When you dig and you look at the differences, you start to realize, okay, 
probably Jesus sat down for like a couple of hours and gave them serious instruction. We're just getting a summary, right? We're getting the summary that Luke got from his witnesses, and Mark gives another summary, and Matthew gives another summary, but they're all condensing what we have. And so we have this distinction that seems like a contradiction. One says, take a staff. The other says, don't take anything except a staff. One says, don't take a staff. You know, and you're like, well, which is it? I think the easiest explanation for these seeming differences are his general instruction was don't take a bunch of junk with you. <laughs> that was the main idea. And then probably his disciples were like, well, what do you mean? Well, what about this? Can I take this? Well, he's taking that. Can I take this? You know, and there was probably a lot of back and forth. So when you think about it in real time, how this unfolded, again, we're just getting it distilled down. We're just getting a little summary. And so one guy might be saying, he said, don't take a bunch of extra staffs. And the other guy said, he said you could take like one staff and that's fine, but don't take like three sticks into every town. You're not going to be beating people, right? You're just going to be preaching and healing. So, so there's kind of a distinction and it gets summarized in slightly different ways. I think this helps remind us of this reality of the, um, the kind of uh, clearness of different stories being told from different perspective. If you were to interview witnesses of a crime scene or some other important event, and they all gave you the exact word-for-word same story, what would you think? you think something was up, right? You'd think like they'd cooked the story. You'd think they got off together and said, okay, this is what we're going to say. Say this and this and this. But if you hear the same story, and it's like the same essential story, but there are slight variations in the details that are kind of different perspective, what would you think? That's a more reliable story. And that's what we have in the Gospels. So again, let me just leave this offering to you. Whenever you come across a contradiction or seeming contradiction in Scripture, I think there are always reasonable explanations for that. I've I've studied these. I've come to like wrestle with them over time. It's usually a pretty good explanation. Even when we're not sure, we just go, well, Scripture is just so reliable. Even when we're not sure about how to make sense of this, we, we just trust it, right? We trust it. So I'd love to help you work through that if you have these questions. But what's the big idea here? Simple. The big idea is simple. Take nothing for your journey. Don't rely on stuff. And then he gives the details. He says, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. You don't have to, do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, he says, stay there. And then from there, depart. So he's like, stay put. Don't bump or jump around to different houses. goes on, he says, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. <coughs> Excuse me. And so he's saying here, shake off the dust from your feet. This would be symbolic for the Jews when they would go into a pagan territory, saying, ah, we... We're shaking off the dust. We don't, we don't want to carry that with us. We don't want them to owe anything to us. We don't want to owe anything, owe anything to them. So it's kind of a sim, symbolic way of saying we're independent, we're separate, right? There's a lot of emphasis in the Old Testament on holiness and separation. Often the Jews misunderstood this. God wants them to be uh, holy and separated in their faithfulness to him and his law. They often confuse that and mix that up with racism. The Old Testament is not teaching racism. The Old Testament is teaching faithfulness and holiness to God. And so in the New Testament, from the New Testament to the Old from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we're seeing this transition where it's really being clarified by Jesus, hey, the line is faith. And so here he's saying, if they don't listen to the message of the kingdom, you dust the the dust off of your sandals and you move on to the next town, you're saying the line is faith. It's not about who they are, where they come from, the race, the people group. It's about faith. Are people receiving the message or not? And that's the dividing line between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. 
is whether or not you trust in the message. So this is simple ministry. I don't know if uh, you guys are like this. I, I tend to overthink the gear and the packing that I'm going to do when I go on a trip. Anybody like that? Uh, I grabbed a picture of some gear for hiking. This isn't even that much. When we hiked the Grand Canyon in October, I took like 10 times that much gear. <clears throat> there were four of us that went together, and I had like this 80-pound backpack, just full, full of all kinds of stuff. I had the machete for the mountain lions. You know, I had my hiking sticks. I had water. I had extra water for everybody else because I was worried they wouldn't bring enough. So I brought enough for me and for them, right? I had extra rope in case anybody fell off the cliff and I'd have to rescue them, right? Like I totally overprepared, totally overprepared. By the end of it, I was like, yeah, I could have I brought like half that much gear. And this was really a product of a lifetime of fantasizing about gear, because I've had this habit over the last, you know, I'm 50 now, but over my whole adult life, we would just all the time go into like Academy and REI, and I just love to look at the gear and fantasize about going on these big expeditions, right? Anybody like that? Like, ooh, this is a really cool camping stove. I mean, I've never cooked outdoors before, but it'd be great to have it, right? And as I've been reflecting on that, I thought, you know what? This passage really stirred this up in me. It's really more about going on the hike than having the gear. Like it's more about doing the thing Jesus has told you to do than having all the fancy equipment so that you can do the thing that Jesus told you to do. All those years I used to walk through REI and Academy and and dream and fantasize about having all this stuff. We never went on any big hikes. The first big hike I went on was last year. That's the first big hike I've done in my whole adult life. And all those years I spent wandering around stores fantasizing about big hikes. It's more important to go do the thing. Simple ministry. Bring it back to this text. Simple ministry. You're going to tell people about Jesus, and you're going to help people. You're going to tell people about Jesus. You're going to help people. You don't need fancy curriculum for that. You don't need fancy gear for that. You want to lead a small group? You don't need a big fancy rich house to lead a small group. You want to help people? You don't need to have everything figured out. You don't need a degree in psychology to help people, right? Jesus is saying, just go and do the simple thing I've asked you to do. And that's how Jesus projects his power through the world. He still does this through us. Are we different than apostles? Yes. We're not going to write the Bible, right? They had a distinct authoritative role, but we're going to do the same kind of thing that they did. We're going to tell people about the hope of Jesus. We're going to proclaim the kingdom and we're going to heal by helping people. Now, I think it's unusual that we would miraculously heal people. That's going to be unusual. I don't think that's normal. I still believe God can do that. We can pray for someone and they'd be healed, right? God can still do that. But that was like this very common mark of the prophets in the Old Testament and of the apostles in the New Testament certifying their authoritative role to write the Bible. Now, can God still do miraculous things today? Yes, it's just not as common. I mean, biblically, when you read the Bible... The Bible covers thousands of years, and the miraculous, crazy things happen in very small number of places and times in the Bible. The Bible itself teaches that miracles are unusual, that they're rare. And so I think that's okay for us to expect them to be rare, even as we hope and pray and trust that God can do whatever he wants to do. So we're a hopeful people. We pray. We ask God to move. But we don't think there's, there's something wrong with me because I've never healed anyone. No, it's okay. Just keep telling people about Jesus and help them as best as you can. The story moves on to verse 7 and 8 and 9, 
Herod learns about all the stuff that's happening, right? So people are being preached to, and they're being healed. It says in verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. So he had killed John, and now all this crazy stuff is happening. There's this big preaching and this big following. And so some are like, oh, John's come back from the dead maybe, right? So these are pagans from a distance trying to understand what God is up to. The pagans are like, what, what's happening here? Some think John was raised from the dead. It goes on, it says in verse 8, by some they said Elijah had appeared, others that one of the prophets of old had risen up. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to seek him. And so we see this pattern where often these people from the outside notice that God is on the move. We still see the pattern today. People that don't believe in God, that don't believe in Jesus, still notice when God is moving, when Jesus is projecting his power, when people are getting saved and getting helped and growing in their faith and families are being restored. Pagan people can notice something is up and yet there's still this kind of haze. They're confused about what's happening. Keep praying that my voice will make it all the way through. Chris was really nice and made me some throat coat tea earlier. <clears throat> so here we see Herod being confused about it. Later on, Herod will appear a couple more times in the book of Luke. Uh, number one, uh, he starts talking to Jesus, and Jesus is like, tell that fox I'm just going to keep preaching and doing my thing. I'm just going to ignore him, right? So Jesus kind of has this attitude toward Herod of like, he's, he's really not interested in the truth. At the end of Jesus' life, he appears before Herod. Herod wants him to do some tricks. Jesus just doesn't even speak to him. Doesn't even answer him. I think the application for us today is, as I've said over the last several weeks, we will continue to be a gracious church. We'll continue to be a hospitable church. We'll continue to preach the word to anybody. But we see this line with Herod and with the attitude of, hey, if people are listening, keep preaching. But if they don't listen, dust off your feet and move on to the next town. We see this emphasis in the New Testament that says, hey, preach to people that will listen, right? So should we be patient? Yes. Should we love outsiders? Yes. We'll, we'll keep doing all those things. But there's also this focus of like, but, but pay attention to people who are hearing the word and receiving the word. Make sure we're discipling those people. So I see throughout Christian history, churches kind of falling off the wagon on either side. They stop preaching to outsiders and just focus on discipling insiders. Or all they do is preach to outsiders. And that's all they do. And they never disciple the insiders, right? The church is called to both. And I think we're seeing some of these things as we see Luke unfold. So we're called to simple ministry, proclaim the truth of who Jesus is, the salvation that we have in him, and heal and help people. Again, I don't think it's going to be miraculous healing. I think it's generally, we see transition in the New Testament. All the letters of the New Testament stop telling, they don't tell Christians to go heal. They tell Christians to love, show mercy, show compassion, show hospitality. That's the command we're under as Christians. Yeah, pray for healing. Pray that God would do miracles. But what we're going to actively do is we're going to tell people about Jesus, and we're going to help people. Remember that what makes a church a church is that we keep preaching the Word of God. That's by definition the main thing that we're about. And when you see the qualifications of leadership in the New Testament, the line of elder, pastor, bishop, is they must be able to teach and refute false doctrine. So there's this kind of continued emphasis that the preaching is, is the primary thing. 
It's what leads everything else. If we say, we're just going to help people, and occasionally we'll preach, what happens? We're not a church anymore. But if we say, you know what, we're going to preach, and along the way we'll help people, that's a church. And so, again, something that Christians get mixed up about. Are we supposed to be about both? Yes. But what's more important? Preaching. The gospel is the most important thing. It's not so important that we say, and helping people doesn't matter, right? Because James says very clearly in, in James 1, you've you got to still help people, right? Like if they're starving, give them something to eat. Like you've got to help people. But that's not our primary commission. Our primary commission is sharing the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is your only hope. Oh, you need something? I'll, I'll try to help you out. I have some money. Maybe I can help you out, right? But the primary focus is that we're going to proclaim the word of God. Tell people about Jesus and then help them along the way. The second way that we see Jesus projecting his power is through burnout. Through burnout. I'm not calling you to burnout. I'm calling you to recognize that when you hit those places of burnout, Jesus can still provide. Jesus can still provide. So we see Jesus projecting his power through burnout in verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Uh, In the parallel passages in Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6, uh, we see this as a retreat. In Matthew, it emphasizes the weariness of Jesus. He was kind of worn out and he needed to get alone. Uh, In Mark, it says he was purposing to bring his disciples apart so that they could have rest as well. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were just dying for rest, you needed a breather, and then it got interrupted. Has that ever happened? Um, anybody with young children? Yes. Um, oh, I just really need a nap. Ah, oh, the baby's crying again. Or vacations. I remember going on vacations when kids were little. A vacation when kids are little is not really restful. Just anyway. If you're a young parent, you're not crazy. It is hard. So he's taking them aside for some rest. He took them, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And he cured those who had need of healing. So you see how Jesus is just continuing the pattern. He sent his disciples out. They're worn out. They came back. He's like, hey, let's go rest. People find them. The crowds invade their retreat. And Jesus continues to preach and to heal. Verse 12, now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. Um, I don't think this is just selfish on behalf of the disciples. I think they're, they're recognizing we're in trouble here, right? We can't feed all these people. We need to send them away. We need to clear out the crowd so people don't starve out here. <coughs> so they're saying we need to do this, Jesus. Verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. So let me retell the scenario this way. The disciples are already so worn out from doing ministry, Jesus says, you're going to need to rest, so let's go apart and have a retreat so you can rest because you're kind of burnt out. I'm going to rest and restore you. And then more ministry shows up knocking on their door. More needs appear. And Jesus continues to meet those needs. And then the disciples are like, Man, Jesus, we got to send these people away so that their needs can be met. And probably in the background, they're like, and we need our needs to be met as well, right? We're at the end of ourselves. I want to encourage you that when you're at the end of yourself, sometimes God will say, okay, maybe you can do something with this. You're like, I have nothing left, Jesus. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And that's what happens in the story. He says, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, 
unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. So they're saying, all we have is a little lunch. These are not giant baby-sized loaf of bread, loaves, right? These are like little loaves they would have in this day and age. So they just have a few fish, a few loaves. And they're saying, this is all we have. John shows us that that came from a little boy, right? Like we shook down the crowd and just one little boy gave us his lunch. That's all we found, right? So they've already been working to solve the problem. They've already been working on it. And they're like, Jesus, we've already tried. We can't do this. You're asking us to give more and we have nothing left to give. Verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men. So one lunch is not enough for 5,000 men. Most scholars would say they're just counting men, so there's probably thousands and thousands more than that of, of women and children. Because again, John already told us there was a little boy there with his lunch. So just representative numbers of the men, of the dads, with their families as well. So maybe 10,000, maybe 20,000. We don't know how many people are here, but it's thousands. And one lunch is not enough. So there were thousands, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So he starts lining them up. He starts organizing them in groups. Verse 15, and they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So this should call to mind the ways that God has prepared uh, food and blessing and bread in the Exodus, right? The man and the quail taking care of his people miraculously. It should remind us of the Elijah and Elisha stories, miraculous provision there. It should remind us even of the Lord's Supper, how Jesus uh, continues to give to us through his broken body and spilled blood now in, in the future of this story. We see this beautiful picture of Jesus' provision, even when they had run out of provisions. And that's what I want you to really take home, that even when you have nothing left, Jesus can still provide. And this is a beautiful picture of prayer as well. When you're trying to solve problems, don't forget to pray. Don't forget to pray. Sometimes one of the best ways to remember to pray is to try to solve the problem and to fail. You should start with prayer, right? Sometimes you're like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to help you. I'm going to do ministry. I'm going to help these hurting people. I'm going, to, I'm going to do it. You go shake down the crowd. You just find one lunch. And you're like, okay, this isn't working. This is not happening. And they go to Jesus with their problem. And what does Jesus do? Jesus continues to provide. He shows them that he can project his power even through their own burnout, even through their own emptiness, their impotence, their inability to solve the problem. Jesus can still solve the problem. It's such a good lesson for us. Again, the lesson is not, hey, go burn out so that you can see Jesus provide. That's not the lesson, right? We talked last week about 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul brought his weakness to the Lord, and the Lord said, my power is made perfect through your weakness. So let's not flip that upside down. I think Gen X, my generation, has confused this a lot with like messy spirituality. Like, yeah, so we just want to be like broken, and that'll show how good God is. No, we're not pursuing brokenness, right? We're not pursuing impotence and failure, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen because that's where all humans live. We don't pursue that, but it will happen. And when it happens, we take that to Jesus. We're like, Jesus, I need, I need help. I can't solve this problem. I need you. And it's a beautiful pattern that we see. One more thing that we see is verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. 
another translation of that would be they were full. It's a rare thing in the first century. Common for us to eat until we're full, right? We live in an age of overabundance, right? We've got all kinds of trashy food available at any moment in our culture. But in that culture, that would have been a rare thing. This would have been like a great feast. He's sitting them down. He's making a great banquet. He's showing them God's abundant provision. That's what we're seeing here. I grabbed a picture of a very tiny burger. I found this online. Apparently, at some places, you can find really tiny burgers that are actually edible. This is like barely bigger than the thumb in the picture. And it stirred up these memories I had when my wife and I first got married, and we would like to go try like kind of cool gourmet hipster restaurants. And there were two categories of these kinds of restaurants. One category uh, was it was really fun, well-made food, and they would just give you abundant provision, and it would be like unique recipes, and it would be filling and satisfying and awesome. I loved those restaurants. There's this other kind of gourmet restaurant, though, where they would offer something, and it was really unique and really amazing, but it was really tiny. I did not like those restaurants, right? Like, I was like, come on, like this costs twice as much as McDonald's and I'm getting half as much food. It was, it was really frustrating to me. I think the symbolism here is the abundant provision. And look at the last little part. What was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. They each take home a basket of leftovers. They take home abundant provision, leftover provision, after they'd all eaten until they were full. And there was plenty. There was more than enough. So again, I want to clarify that God has already provided for us boundaries, sleep, food, Sabbath, right? We don't pursue burnout. We don't go and try to beat ourselves up so that we'll get extra baskets of leftovers. That is not what this is about. This is about when we do come to the end of ourselves, we seek God. We say, God, help me. I don't know know what to do. And we trust that he will provide. He will provide, even in our places of burnout, even in our places of having nothing left. Bring your problems to Jesus. Bring your weakness to Jesus. Bring your burnout to Jesus. And he will continue to provide, even, even when you don't know the answer and I don't know the answer even when we don't know what to do next. Last point is Jesus projects his power by the cross. There's a short little section. There's a lot more material in the, uh, the other Gospels about this story. But here he just kind of reiterates the cross, and he reiterates his personhood, his role as the Messiah, as the Christ. So we see this in verses 18 through 22. Jesus projects his power by the cross. So in verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Do you notice the echo here? This is just the same stuff that people were saying to Herod. So they're like these pagans in Herod's court. They didn't know what was going on. Maybe it's John the Baptist. Maybe it's an old prophet. Who knows? But something powerful is happening. And his disciples are saying, yeah, we're, we're hearing the same stories. People don't know really what's happening. They just know that God is on the move. Big things are happening, but they don't fully understand what's going on. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
who do you say that I am? That's, that's what you should ask yourself. Who do I say that he is? Like, who, who is he? What, what does he mean to me? Jesus turns and is like, but, but what do you think? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. That word Christ is a Greek word for the anointed one, the specially chosen one. We have a Hebrew version that you're familiar with. It's Messiah. So both of those words get used a lot in the New Testament in different translations. The chosen one, the anointed one, the specially chosen leader. They would anoint with oil, ceremonial oil. It's like perfume. It's like hygiene. And it would be a way that they would, in the ancient world, designate. It was like deputizing someone. It's like giving someone a crown. It's like giving someone a badge. So you're the specially chosen anointed leader. That's what that word means. And it would be done for kings. It would be done for prophets. It would be done for priests. And so there are a lot of anointed ones in the Old Testament. There are a lot of specially chosen leaders. But what they're describing is is like the ultimate one that they've all been waiting for. They know that every leader in the Old Testament, every prophet, every priest, every king achieved great things for God and projected God's power in the world, but they were still waiting for that final, perfect projection of God's power and grace and love in the world. And that's who they know Jesus is. Like, you're, you're the special anointed one we've all been waiting for. Now again, you'll see that they're still confused about exactly how he's going to do what he's going to do, though. Like, we see by the incredible things you're doing that you're it. You're the man, and we're following you, Jesus. But they were still expecting him to project his power physically by force as a military leader. And so in the parallel passage in Matthew 16, when Jesus starts talking about his death, Peter's like, no way we're going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The cross is the only way that I'm going to project my power in the world. So it's very clear in Matthew 16, this interplay. Here, he's just going to talk about the cross. We don't get to see uh, Peter fighting with him about it. Here, it goes on in verse 21, and he says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see this in a lot of the Gospels. Jesus tells them what's going to happen. He tells them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And they do not get it. Like, they don't have a category for that. They're like, oh, this is another one of his weird poetic metaphors, right? Like, surely not. As I said, in Matthew, Peter straight up tells him, no, that, we're not going to do that. And Jesus keeps coming back to, you know, this is how I'm going to accomplish my victory. Jesus, again, first and foremost, comes to defeat sin and death. That's why, as I said earlier, what defines a church is the proclamation of this hope in the cross. It's what defines our identity as followers of Jesus is that we have laid our sins on the cross. We've asked him to forgive us. We're not trying to save ourselves by physical strength. We're not trying to heal ourselves apart from the work of Jesus dying for us and rising from the dead. That's the central foundation of everything else. So the question for you and for me is, am I finding my identity in the cross or in something else? We talked about this with power last week over demons. We said one of the fundamental pieces, building blocks 
of spiritual warfare is our identity in Christ. Every morning, you and I have to put on the armor. Every morning, we have to dress ourselves in the salvation that Jesus gives us through the cross, the righteousness of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. That's all the labels of the armor that we're putting on. We're identifying with his death and resurrection. When a Christian gets baptized, you're identifying with him. You're symbolically saying, yeah, the old me has died, and the new me has risen to new life. You're saying, Jesus is my only hope. Is that your identity? Do you see that the cross is your only way to God? That Jesus gave himself for you to save you, to transform you. One of my favorite verses I learned as a very young Christian uh, actually through the Navigator's uh, topical memory system. So this Navigator's memory, uh, Navigator's ministry, we have a group meeting on Friday nights in the back building. Uh, they have a topical memory system. You can get an app where you can learn different Bible verses to kind of give you a holistic view of the Christian life. So I highly recommend that. Um, it's the topical memory system app. It's like a $5 app, but you can memorize verses uh, instead of scrolling on social media. Galatians 2.20 says it this way. I have been crucified with Christ... And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's my new identity. There's no more me any longer, but it's Christ crucified and risen from the dead. That's my new identity. Is that your new identity? Are you remembering that? Are you entrusting yourself to Jesus on your good days and your bad, in your burnout, in your strength? So that you can go do ministry, tell other people, help them, and in your weakness when you have nothing left. The cross is your ultimate salvation. That's what he's calling his disciples back to again and again. I grabbed a picture of our visit to the place where Jesus told his disciples this. This is me wearing my I Heart Clean shirt at Caesarea Philippi. So you see there I'm in front of an arch, and there are all these cutout um, little little uh, places where they would set statues in the side of this cliff in Caesarea Philippi. So it's northern Israel. It's the foot of Mount Hermon there in Israel on the border there with uh, Lebanon. And they would set these pan statues. The god Pan with the goat feet, uh, and he'd play the little pan pipes, right? Uh, he was a god of, of mischief and sexual immorality. And so Jesus, we're told in Matthew, when he has this little talk with him, had brought them to this temple. There's a temple of Zeus there. There's a temple of Augustus Caesar there. But historically, what had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years was this temple to Pan there at Caesarea Philippi. So all kinds of disgusting things would happen there. Like when I read Matthew 16, I'm like, man, I'm shocked. I can't believe Jesus even took his disciples there. This was a, a disgusting place. And it's there that he reiterates that he is the Christ, that their confession of him as the Christ, as the Messiah, is their only hope. And it's there that he reiterates that he's going to build his church through that confession. He's going to build his church on that foundation of his death and resurrection for us. Uh, when you go there, there's a second picture of me in front of a cave. You can see this deep cave. And in the first century, there was a bottomless pit there. And there was a spring that would often gush water out of that pit. And guess what they would call that cave, that pit? They called it the gates of hell. The gates of hell. So if you're familiar with the version of the story in Matthew 16, Jesus says, yeah, the confession of me as the Messiah, 
my death and resurrection, it's on that rock that I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against me. He brought them to the gates of hell, to the entrance to the underworld, where the most disgusting things in all of Israel would take place, a place that any good Jew would never even go to. He says, I'm going to build my church on this kind of sin and rebellion. Jesus is talking about this power projection by which he's going to take over the world. We talked at the beginning that the military uses the term power projection to talk about their logistics and being able to move tanks and to be able to fight wars. We're thankful for your service, but there's an even more important war that's taking place, the spiritual war against sin and death and selfishness. So as we've seen, Jesus is going to project his power through simple ministry. He's calling you and me to just tell people about him and help people, just like the apostles did. And we also saw that even in our burnout, even in our absolute weakness, Jesus will continue to provide and continue to project his power through us. And then finally, the foundation of all of this is the cross, the cross of Christ. That's how he's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and that you have called us to follow you. We see the beauty of the ways that you've projected your power through your disciples and how you continue to do that through us. We pray that you would give us confidence, uh, give us your strength, empower us by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.